Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man clearly attested to you by God with powerful deeds, wonders, and miraculous signs that God performed among you through him, just as you yourselves know this man who was handed over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you executed by nailing him to a cross at the hands of Gentiles. But God raised him up having released him from the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held in its power. For David says about him, I saw the Lord always in front of me, for he is at the right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My body also will live in hope because you will not leave my soul in Hades nor permit your Holy One, to experience decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of joy with your presence. Brothers, I can speak confidently to you about our forefather David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So then, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, David, by foreseeing this spoken about the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his body experience decay. This Jesus, God raised up, and we are all witnesses to it. So then, exalted to the right hand of God, and having received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know beyond a doubt that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Shelly. That's a lot of verses. We've got an exciting passage this morning. I'm really excited to be sharing with you, and just thanks for your time. Um, I got married to my wife back in 2005, and from around 2004 to 2009, in my opinion, was an absolute golden era of science fiction television. <laughs> and yes, I, I am an, I'm, a, I'm a huge nerd. Sorry. <laughs> it's just that is what it is. During those years... On Friday nights, again, newlyweds, Friday nights, you had three hours of some of the best sci-fi ever. You had two hours of new episodes of Stargate, which was a really fun show. I really enjoyed it. But then also after that, it capped off with an hour of a show called Battlestar Galactica. Just out of curiosity, has anybody watched? This is the 2000 series one. Okay. That show quickly became my favorite of all time. And I grew up on Star Trek and all this stuff, so I watched a ton of sci-fi in my life. But that quickly became my absolute favorite. And the show, it's a pretty dark show, so it, you know, not for kids, that kind of thing, but it just checked all the boxes for me. It had space, action, drama, and just an incredible story. Now, at the same time that Battlestar was running, there was another much more popular show called Lost. And each week, again, for whatever reason, we just didn't have a lot of time to do much other than watch TV, I'd watch Lost as well. And that show was such a love-hate for me because... 
it had some of the same cool things about Battlestar. It had cool characters. It had an interesting premise. It had mystery and, and just all these twists and turns. But the difference between those shows was Lost never delivered. It kept raising these questions, and then it wouldn't answer them. And by the end of the show, at least for me, I was just so frustrated and disappointed with the show because the writers even said, we don't plan on answering all these questions. We're just going to wrap the show up. And so, uh, so for me and, and Marcy and my friends, we were just kind of like, the show is very well named because the writers are just as lost as the characters <laughs> they're talking about. But for me, Battlestar was completely different. That show just, it wrapped things up so well. It solved the mysteries. It just, it was very well written. And we're at a point in the, the, the book of Acts where the people of Jerusalem are wrestling with a similar mystery. From their perspective, a few weeks earlier, this, this teacher, Jesus, he was crucified. And Jesus was really popular. A lot of people were really interested in what he was talking about. He was performing miracles. And there was a lot of these rumors that this guy might actually be the Messiah. But the religious leaders were adamant, this guy's a blasphemer, he's not doing the work of God, and so they crucified him. And there were several messianic movements within that era, um, so it was, it was a familiar idea there might be a Messiah, oh wait, he died, it's over with. And usually when that happens, the movement just fizzles. But now, a few weeks later, you have a group of his disciples, and they're bolder than ever, they're proclaiming Jesus, and they're saying some really weird things, that this Jesus has risen from the dead. And at the same time, while they're preaching this, those in the audience hear their words in their original language. And so it's just this really weird mystery, what's going on. And so last week, Scott talked about the beginning of that, about the, the events that happened and about Peter getting up and beginning to give a message about what this is about, what is happening. And so today, we're going to see the rest of his answer. What does this mystery mean? And he's going to be explaining this is God at work through his spirit. This is the fulfillment of all they have been hoping for. This is the power and work of God through the resurrected Christ who is reigning. So before we get started, let's just pray real quick. Lord, we just thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity to, to explore your word together. And I pray, Lord, that you would just open our, our hearts, open our ears, and just I pray that you would speak to us by your spirit. In your name, amen. So we're going to be picking up in Acts chapter 2, and this is a really, there's a lot of, of verses here, there's a lot of content here, and so I'm going to do my best to try to keep it briefish, but we will be jumping around just because there's just no way we have time to go through all this. We'll start in verse 22, and Peter says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man clearly attested to you by God with powerful deeds, wonders, and miraculous signs that God performed among you through him. So Peter's language is that God has been demonstrating, he's been providing testimony, he's been revealing in Jesus that Jesus is doing his work. He's been empowering his ministry. So this is God, this was God working in their midst. And Peter continues, this man who was handed over, you executed by nailing him to a cross at the hands of the Gentiles. And Peter's point here is, it's not just necessarily the people, it's not just the religious leaders, it's by extension, it's all of Israel. They have rejected Jesus. They've followed the example of their ancestors who rejected the prophets. They're, they're moving against the work of God. 
It's actually possible. So given the size of Jerusalem and given the time frame, it's very possible that some of the people listening to Peter right now were some of the ones a few weeks earlier at the trial of Jesus who were screaming, crucify him. So there's a, it's a very, very fitting um, critique there. And Peter's point is that even though Jesus was crucified, that didn't stop God's work. God's plan was not interrupted. He continues, this was by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So this raises a little bit of a theological tension because the question is, why did Jesus die? Was it because the people did it or was it because it was God's plan? And this is a really, really fun theological question to wrestle with. It's, it's been around since the very beginning of the church. There has just been tons and tons written and thought and reflected on this. And it's not an easy one to solve. And it's often referred to as the problem of God's sovereignty or his control versus the problem of human responsibility or the fact that we have free will. And I think it's really important for a question like this, we have to understand we're talking about an infinite God and we are finite beings. And so it's just really important that we keep in mind that we, we, there's some of this we may not be able to understand. There's just some mystery to the nature of God here. And so we need to make sure that we don't reason ourselves into bad theology. And what I mean is, some folks, if they were to read this verse about this being by God's plan, they would say right away, yes, number one important thing, God is sovereign. God rules over all. He controls all things. And that's true, but at the same time, if you emphasize that too much, it eliminates our freedom and it eliminates the fact that we are responsible and guilty for our sin. But you can go the other direction. You can say, Yes, we're free. We control our lives. We have complete autonomy. We are in complete control of our lives. And you can so overemphasize that that the question is, is, well, what does it mean to say that God's in control then? So I'd like to suggest when Peter's saying this that we keep in mind three guardrails, three truths that help us understand that to, to, to better um, encapsulate what the, the actual truth is. There's a, there's a mystery of how these relate, but at least these guardrails help us understand where the truth is at within. And the first is that, yes, God is in control. God is sovereign. He rules over his creation. The second guardrail is God is not the author of sin. Sin is on us. Sin is our problem. Sin is something that we cause. God is holy. He's perfect. He's just. There's no sin. There's no darkness in him. And the third guardrail is, and we are responsible. We have some amount of free will and control over ourselves that we are guilty of our sin and we are responsible for our actions. And so between these guardrails, the truth of how God's sovereignty and our free will needs to lie. So our church is a free Methodist church, and this is in the tradition of the preacher and theologian John Wesley. And talking about this tension, John Wesley says, God acts in heaven, in earth, and under the earth, throughout the whole compass of his creation, by sustaining all things, without which everything would be in an instant sink into its primitive nothing. By governing all, every moment superintending everything that he has made, strongly and sweetly influencing all, and yet without destroying the liberty of his rational creatures. So I think the point is, when Peter's talking about that the crucifixion was by God's plan, yet the people are guilty, the point is that God allows people to have freedom because he has a desire that in the end we will choose to love him and choose to follow him and that will be a free thing. But yet, in that whole cycle, he remains sovereign. So Peter, he's just walking right through this tension. He's just living in this tension. The people are guilty of rejecting God's work. 
At the same time, this didn't interrupt God's plan. This was because God allowed it. And so Peter moves on about explaining how this didn't interrupt God's plan. He's going to continue in verse 24. God raised him up, having released him from the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held in its power. That God raised Jesus to life. Death could not hold him. So Jews in the first century, they, they did believe in the resurrection. That was a pretty common belief. We know that the Sadducees, they, they rejected it, but most Jews taught that most Jews believed that. And in the Old Testament itself, there are a few references to the resurrection. There's not a lot. And the reason why is because in both the Old Testament and in early Judaism, the main hope was that God would move to bring, to save his people, that God would redeem the lost, that God would bring justice, that God would bring salvation. And as a, pow- as a part of this big movement of salvation, that God would also raise the faithful who had died back to life so they could be a part of this era of salvation. They could live in that with everyone else. So the Jewish hope was very much in a resurrection at the end. But Peter's talking about something much different, something very unexpected, because no Jew at that time would have ever thought that God would raise a single person to life before the end. That's why N.T. Wright says, nobody imagined that any individuals would be raised in advance of the great last day. There's no tradition, no Jewish tradition about a Messiah being raised to life. Nobody put the hope of Messiah and resurrection together until the early Christians did so. So when Peter says God raised Jesus from the dead, that's a new, that's an exciting, that's a different, that's a weird thing to say. And then Peter quotes extensively now from Psalm 16. He he actually quotes almost the entire chapter of Psalm 16. And it's really important, whenever the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament, or even when it just alludes to it, it's really important we go back and understand that Old Testament passage, because that's going to feed into what the New Testament's saying. So in Psalm 16, it's written by David. David is in some kind of situation of distress or danger, And he's praying out to God for his protection. And Psalm 16 is a psalm of hope. And David rejoicing in the fact that God keeps his people in his hands. He provides for them. He provides protection. So it's a psalm of hope and expectation in what God's going to do. The key part of Psalm 16 that Peter's going to be building off of is in Psalm 16, 9 through 10, where David says, Therefore my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body will rest secure. Because you will not abandon me. And again, this is David talking. You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. And that word there could also just be the tomb. That you will not abandon me so that I will die. Nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. So I think David's hope in Psalm 16 is he's hoping that God will protect him from something very dangerous. He's hoping that he will not die. But this raises a little bit of a a tricky issue, though. Because Peter is quoting from Psalm 16 And he's saying this is pointing to Jesus. This is pointing to Jesus' resurrection. And I think this is something I've wrestled with a lot (laughs) these last few weeks, and I'm I'm not 100% sure about this. But I think what's going on here is that Peter is recognizing that David had this hope of God's protection. But David's hope in that protection, that wasn't a guarantee. Like, David knew this, and we all know this. Like, evil things still happen to God's people, Right? And God's people, even at the end of the day, we all still die. And so even though it is true and it is valuable to to rejoice and to to ask God for his help and his protection, there's no guarantee that our problems today 
are necessarily going to work out the way we want them to. And Peter makes the same case for, for David. Like David himself, in verse 29, Peter says, I can speak confidently about our forefather David. He both died and he was buried and he is in his tomb this day. So I'm not trying to say that, that, that God failed David in some way, but the reality is the hope that David was talking about, like that wasn't his entire experience. I mean, he still died. And the hope is pointing towards a bigger problem. There's a problem of death. There's a problem of evil in this world. And I think Peter is, that's what he's, he's, he's riffing off of here. He's saying that David's talking about this hope, but it's pointing to a bigger problem. And that's a problem of death and evil. And that's where Jesus comes in, because Jesus is a solution to that. Jesus' resurrection is a turning point in human history. It's a beginning of God's salvation. It's a beginning of God addressing this bigger issue of death and evil. Jesus is the promised Messiah, the promised king, and this is a promise that David himself was looking forward to. But in his resurrection, it's, we see the defeat of death. Death could not hold him. So Peter now moves on. This, this cues up his final point. And that is, in verse 33, that Jesus now has been exalted to the right hand of God. And the right hand, especially for a throne or a king or authority, that's a position of power and of favor, a place of honor and authority. Which is why in Matthew 28, after Jesus rose from the dead, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The point is that now that Jesus has been resurrected, God has exalted him to a place where he is ruling with full authority and power. He's ruling over all of his enemies. He's even ruling over death. Peter continues, having received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, he has poured out what you both see and hear. So the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, and I came across a really cool definition that said the Spirit is God's invisible, creating, and animating presence. He's invisible and powerful like the wind and sustaining all like the air that we breathe. And we see the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible story. He's in the very first verses when it talks about the Spirit of God floating over the surface of the waters. And like Olivia said earlier, we see him at the very end when the new creation and the new heavens and the new earth show up. And in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit primarily appeared in God's presence, God's presence in the tabernacle, God's presence in the temple, and God's empowering presence within individuals. So like the prophets or key members in the Old Testament, key figures. But the Old Testament looked forward towards a future when this presence of God would be poured out on all of God's people, that all of God's people would house God's presence, all of God's people would know God and experience his, his power in their life. And, and the part of Peter's message that, that, that Scott talked about last week, Peter actually quotes from one of these prophecies, and it's the prophet Joel. And we're going to just read a couple of segments of that. It's a long prophecy. Um, but back in verse 17, In these last days it will be, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. And everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. So Peter's point is, what you're seeing here at Pentecost, this is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. This is the fulfillment of God's spirit being poured on his people, just like was the hope of the Old Testament. This means that the beginning of the end is here. These last days, these, these moments of God's salvation, it starts with Jesus and it starts with his resurrection. That God is fulfilling his promises right now in front of their eyes. 
The cool thing about Peter's explanation here is, is uh, you know, we're just hitting on all the big mysteries this morning. We also see the Trinity at play, which is another fun one. We see the Father, he's empowering Jesus. He's raising him from the dead. We see Jesus, he's reigning, he's defeating death, he's ushering in God's kingdom. We see the Father giving Jesus the Spirit. We see Jesus pouring out his Spirit on his followers, and we see the Spirit moving in and through God's people to continue the kingdom work today. And so Peter rightfully, he, he ends on this just triumphant note. He says, let all of the house of Israel know beyond a doubt God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. God has made the crucified and risen Jesus Lord or King and Christ or Messiah. There is such an amazing depth to what Luke is describing here as the beginning of the church. There's so much that that Peter just crams into the sermon. It's really, really incredible. But there's two things that I wanted to talk about this morning, um, and there's plenty more we could talk about, but two things in particular I wanted to bring up related to this sermon. The first is, what Peter's talking about here, like this is the foundation of our faith. He is covering the core truth of the gospel. The cool thing is, we're going to see this throughout the rest of Acts, and it's throughout the New Testament. Whenever someone is proclaiming the gospel, they're using the same basic points Peter uses here. Jesus came, he died, he rose again, and he's ruling today. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. This word vain means empty, devoid of truth, fruitless, and no purpose. Paul's point is, is this whole salvation thing, it depends, it makes or breaks based on Jesus' resurrection. Like, this is history, this is reality, this is what defines everything about what we're doing. So as the first disciples, I think our call is to be witnesses to Jesus. And when we say witness, I, I, I suspect for most of you, like me, <clears throat> your first thought is that we need to let people see Jesus in our life. That's a good thing, right? We want people to see his love, his mercy, his grace in our life. And we want to tell others about our experience of Jesus, of, of knowing him, of knowing his peace and his hope. And these are all really, really important parts of being witnesses. But when we're witnessing to those things, we're witnessing to who Jesus is in our experience. And I think that's great. But I think that we also need to look at Peter's sermon and realize we need to also witness to what he has done and what he is doing. The good news of the gospel is that he was raised to life and he is reigning today. That is the gospel. And that needs to be a part of our witness, who he is and what he has done. I found uh, the, the discipline of Christian apologetics really helpful here. And if you're not familiar with it, apologetics is, it takes theology, it takes history, it takes philosophy. <clears throat> and it just tries to make the case that the core truths of Christianity are reasonable and that these, these, these make sense and correspond to reality. And I think that the, the challenge of apologetics, and sometimes I think what folks consider to be even maybe a danger is, you can assume, well, these great arguments, we can just present them to people and they will believe in Jesus. Like you can just, people see these arguments and they will follow it. <clears throat> Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. For, for, for most folks, um, saving faith, well, for all of us, saving faith is having this trusting relationship in Jesus. But where apologetics can be very useful is actually for us as a church. 
and it can remind us and help build our confidence in the fact that the things we are believing, these aren't just nice stories. Like, these are true, these are reality, these are reflections of reality. And they can strengthen us in that way. And then I think they can also, the apologetics can be really useful for helping give us tools for how to be a witness to this truth and this reality. So it's not giving us arguments to win people, but it's giving us ways and techniques to be able to help break down some of the potential barriers for people to know Jesus. So things like, here's good reasons to believe that God actually exists. Here's good reasons to believe why the Bible is trustworthy. And here's why believing in the resurrection is actually a true and a good thing. So I have a couple of resources here I'm going to put up. And these are by far not even, like, they're just a small sample. Um, I'm a big fan of, of William Lane Craig. He is by far one of my favorite apologists. He's just such an incredibly smart man and such a, a faithful Christian. Um, but Reasonable Faith, that's just full of amazing videos. It's podcasts, articles, Q&As. It's all kinds of great material. Another one is Lee Strobel. He's um, written a number of very classic works on apologetics. Um, the Case for Christ is one that I think is really good. And then one I've been reading lately is by Neil Shenvey, Why Believe? And it's a more recent work, but it's just absolutely excellent. Just great content on why the things we believe are true and, and, and reasonable. So that's my first thought about Peter's sermon. The second one is that Jesus wants to work in and through us by his spirit. A really important theme and a thread that runs throughout Peter's sermon is this idea of God's power. We see God's power in Jesus' ministry, God's power in the resurrection, God's power in Jesus being exalted, God's power in the spirit, and God's plan, God's work, that God's working today, God's working in history, God's working today. And right after Peter's sermon, we actually see God's power and God's work happen because the spirit empowers this group of people that are listening and, you, Peter, um, and Luke tells us that you have 3,000 that immediately repent and are baptized. And that number, that's a lot of people. But keep in mind that, that Jerusalem at this time, it had maybe 100,000 people, maybe 150. So 3,000, that is a huge, huge portion of this city. And these people immediately spread all over the region. And so by the Spirit's power, you have this just explosion of church growth in just this one moment. And so the same spirit, the same power is at work today for God's kingdom. And I, I hope that all of us would say we want to have more of the spirit's power in our life. We want to experience more of this power. But sometimes, and, and maybe, maybe you do, and that is, that is awesome, praise the Lord. But I know for myself, there is just sometimes where it just feels like there's a gap where my experience of God's power is just, it doesn't seem to match what I see in the Bible. Sometimes it doesn't even match what I hear that the Spirit's doing in other people's life. You know, we, we, we try our best to follow the Lord, and just some days it feels like spiritually we're just stuck, and we're just not making the progress that it seems like we should be able to make. Well, as I've been studying this, this passage, I came across um, an idea, and maybe you've heard of it before, but back in the fourth century, some of the desert monks talked about the sin of acedia. Has anybody ever heard of this by any chance? Cool. So it, 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 it was surprising me. I never heard about this. It's really interesting. It, you might have heard about what it was later called. Later, it was called the sin of sloth. But the interesting thing is, for these monks, acedia did not have anything to do with how we spend our time. It didn't have really anything to do with even how productive we are, which is normally, I think, when we think of the word sloth, where we make that connection. 
But so these, these monks, they lived out in the desert, and they referred to the sin as the noonday demon. And what that means is, so again, out in the desert, it gets very hot, obviously. And these monks would spend all afternoon sitting in their room, so no air conditioning, and they would just sit in the room and pray. And in that, those, that, those afternoons, you know, the cool of the morning is gone, and they're just sitting in their room waiting for relief and rest in the evening. And you can imagine they're sitting there, they're sweating, they're miserable, they're trying their best to, to pray and say, focus on God. And they're like, when is, gonna, when, is gonna, when is it gonna be time for this to be over with? Looking up at the sky, where's the sun at? It's not even moving. I'm not even making progress. And so they would talk about acedia as being this temptation just to give up, just to stop. This is just not doing anything. And so these monks, they, would, they, they, they thought this, this, this vice of acedia was actually the most spiritually dangerous vice. It was more dangerous than all the other the possible sins because it was a temptation to resist true spiritual formation. Now, obviously, we aren't monks today. We aren't living in the desert. But I think the principles are transferable that we do ourselves, like when we're talking about discipleship and we're talking about spiritual disciplines, that there is a temptation to avoid things that are hard. There's a temptation to avoid things that are uncomfortable or painful. And at times there can be a temptation just to give up. We're not seeing the results we expect. I came across an author, um, DeYoung, who said, those with acedia do want the easy life for they find detachment from the old selfish nature too painful and burdensome, and so they neglect acts of love that will maintain and deepen the relationship. Acedia wants the security of Christianity without the sacrifice and struggle to be made anew. We like the comforting thought of being saved by love, of being God's own, but not the discomfort of transformation and the work of discipline, even the death of the old sinful nature that God's love requires of us. And so I think the point is, this sin, this, this vice, this, this danger, it's, at its core, it's really us resisting the work of the Spirit in our hearts. And this could be an act of resistance, right? Like there could be something that, you know, I, I just really want this. This is the direction I want to move in, and I'm not willing to trust God with it. I'm just going to do it. Or it could be an area of sin where I'm just not willing to let go of this. I just want, I, this is something that I, I just want, and so I'm going to keep doing it. But this could also be passive resistance. You know, as a church, we've been talking about these spiritual practices, whether it's prayer or fasting and, um, or Sabbath, and we're going to be talking about more of them next year. And I, I know sometimes it can, you can listen to these and it can be like, that does sound interesting, that sounds beneficial, and I, I'll just I'll get to that later. I'll just deal with that later. Or, or even, you know, you, you see these opportunities for next steps, and we just can say, I'm just not going to be engaged this right now. I just don't want to do this right now. I know for myself, um, you know, there's plenty of times, whether it's from a book or a podcast or even just something that is being preached on a Sunday morning, where it's like, that does sound good. And as soon as I even begin to engage a little bit, my mind quickly jumps to, man, that's going to be uncomfortable. Or, man, that's inconvenient. That is just not going to be practical. Or how, I, the finances, I have no idea how that financially could work out. And my all-time favorite is, I'm just too busy. The irony is, acedia, which, you know, again, later was called sloth, the main manifestation I think of it for us today is in being busy. 
And it's not, I, I, don't wanna, I don't want this to be like a super guilty thing. Like it's not that all of this is necessarily always the case. This is more that these are symptoms that may be pointing towards this. But if we are resisting God's work in any way at all, if we're resisting the spirit actively or passively, then I think we are stalling our spiritual growth. And if we're resisting the spirit, we're limiting our experience of God's power in our life. DeYoung continued, God wants to kick down the whole door to our hearts and flood us with his life. We want to keep that door partway shut so there are just a few lingering treasures remaining untouched, hidden in the shadows. We can spend our whole lives procrastinating about true discipleship, even if we faithfully engage in lots of religious activities. Acedia can show itself in the total inertia of couch potatoes or in the restless distractions of endless activity. Somewhere in between these two is a holy Sabbath rest for the heart that has given itself utterly to God, a heart which can say with joy, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Last week, Scott gave us a challenge to make ourselves ready, to make ourselves ready for the Spirit. And I don't think he was talking about something in the distance, like, yes, we have this thing happening in a few years, let's get prepared, let's get ready for it. He was talking about the fact the Spirit is working today. The same Spirit of power that rose Jesus from the dead, the same Spirit of power that that we see happening in Acts. He's working today. And we need to lean in. We need to engage. We need to listen. We need to seek his guidance. We need to seek his transformation in our life when we need to surrender to his work. Even if it's hard, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's difficult. So I'd like to suggest this week, if you could, I have four questions. And then Just pray through these questions. Think through them and reflect on them. Where am I holding on to something that I need to surrender to the Spirit? Where am I either passively or actively resisting his work in my life? Where do I need to trust him more? And where do I need to wait? Some stories have absolutely amazing writers. Stories where you trust the writer and you know no matter how many twists or turns, how weird things get, you know this writer is going to deliver. He's going to wrap things up. It's going to end well. And it may sound a little corny to say, but the truth really is Jesus is the greatest writer of all. He is the author of life. The resurrection is the biggest story twist or plot twist ever. But we can trust where he is taking us. We can trust where his spirit is leading It will be better for us in the end. It will work out. That is where salvation is. So that his power can fully move in and through us, continuing the work of his kingdom, and so that we can proclaim with our whole lives, Jesus is king and he is risen. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you are doing, what you have done. Lord, we just pray that you would move in our hearts and pray that you would just help us to let go of what we're holding on to so that you can move in your full power and your fullness of life in us. Lord, I pray you would just use us for your kingdom and for your glory and that we could just honor you in all we do. In your name, Lord.